This week's episode is sponsored by Jagged Edge Productions and ITN Studios' Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey 2. Only in theaters, March 26th to March 28th. The suspenseful and thrilling sequel to last year's immense hit, Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, amplifies the gore factor with ten times the number of kills to put fans both new and old at the edge of their seats. After Christopher Robin reveals their existence, Winnie the Pooh, Piglet, Tigger, and Owl land on the endangered species list as hard targets. Unwilling to hide in the shadows, the ultimate scream team embarks on a murderous rampage through the town of Ashdown to get their revenge on Christopher Robin, once and for all. So don't miss out, and mark your calendars to catch the limited engagement of Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey 2, only in theaters March 26th to March 28th. Tickets are available now. This is the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. You got it. We're neighbors. Hey, listen, we're having a barbecue. You should come. Welcome. We like to make this place feel like a real neighborhood. Boils and ghouls, lock your doors and strap yourselves in. From Los Angeles, California, Bloody Disgusting presents the Boo Crew Podcast. Horror news, commentary, reviews, interviews, and more. With your hosts, Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. I'm Leo. I'm Lauren. I'm Trevor, and we are the Boo Crew. Welcome to episode 122. We are still quarantined at the speakeasy. Studio, Lauren and I are anyway, for our friend and fellow co-host Leo is being summoned via Ouija board from his Leo lair in stunning downtown Eagle Rock. Eagle Rock! Woo! What's going down in Eagle Rock tonight? Dude, there's like nothing, nobody on the streets except a bunch of coyotes. You know what, so though? Your dogs. We went and visited my mom through a window. We went in her backyard just to cheer her up. Because she's like older and stuff. And there right. was fucking traffic. There was traffic. I was shocked. Oh, I'm like, shit. what? I like, because we haven't really been out anywhere. Yeah, in like, weeks. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, we're going to take advantage of this three o'clock no traffic on the 405. Nope. There's traffic. Yeah. I was oh like, it felt like the whole city was playing a joke on us. And actually, <laughs> the whole city was actually, has actually been fully functioning. And they told the Shans yeah. to stay at home. Sing alert. Sing alert. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah it was sucks. crazy. But uh, anyway, this episode. We are signing a lease with writer-director David Marmer and star Nicole Bryden Bloom of the new horror flick One Beyond. At time of release on VOD and digital Friday, April 24th. They join us remotely since everyone is still saving lives by staying home. Or just playing a joke on us and everything's back to normal. That'd be really fucked up. This film is <laughs> such a fun experience and will keep you on the edge of your couch the whole time. Lots of magic is in the storyline unfolding before you with this one. Plenty of surprises. We highly recommend it. Hear about the adventures of indie filmmaking, the crazy issues that can come up during production, and how to end up with a finished product that looks and feels beautiful. Put down your security deposit and move in. This is David Marmer. And this is Nicole Braden Bloom. You are signing the lease on another terrifying episode of The Boo Crew. I just moved here. I don't really know anyone. What brought you to L.A.? Trying to start a new life. Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto 
Boo Autopsy. Joining the Boo Crew via the Speakeasy Studio, he is a visionary new writer and director who got his start in short films, including the award-winning Love and Other Unstable States of Matter in 2010, and an episode of the web TV series Firsts. She is an incredible actor. On stage, she's performed in theater productions of everything from Beauty and the Beast to Les Miserables. She made her television debut on the Michael J. Fox show, went on to guest star in Showtime's The Affair and Law and Order SVU. She featured in the award-nominated indie Better Off Single. This new project is her debut lead role in a feature film. She is mesmerizing to watch. Her performance in this new horror flick is so vibrant and emotionally rich. You'll know it when you see it if you haven't been among those who've had the chance to experience this film on its insanely successful run at festivals like Beyond Fest and Fantasia, where reviewers have said it's one of the most intense experiences they've ever had. The script is remarkable. It looks and feels huge. The director has crafted this classic roller coaster experience that is almost unheard of in an indie film. What our guests have created is a very special lightning in a bottle movie here. It's called One Bedroom. A time of release available on VOD April 24th. Joining us are filmmaker David Marmer and star Nicole Bride and Bloom. Thank you guys so much. Yeah. Thank you guys for having us. That was so uh, happy to I'm, be here. I'm blushing. <laughs> <laughs> where did you guys come from and where have you been all our lives? We need more horror from the both of you. Like what a treat to the genre. Well, I've been kicking around for a long time. You know, I, I, I went to film school to be a director and then uh, got lost in the wilderness doing, you know, industrial films and market research films to make ends meet for several years. And uh, in the end, though, that that turned out to be good practice because I kind of learned to do everything, which is what you have to do when you're doing a movie that's a very small budget like this one was. And then at some point I decided that nobody was going to kick down my door to direct a feature film. And I needed to really focus on writing because that was the only way I'd have any control over my fate. Side directing and just focused on writing for a few years, kind of taught myself to to do it at a professional level. And that led to everything that led to getting representation and, um, my managers, uh, Allard Cantor and Jared Murray at Epicenter, um, asked me at some point, you know, do you have any other scripts you can show us? And the only thing I could think of was this old, one of the first features I ever wrote, which was one BR, you know, I'd written it in my, in my twenties when I was living in an apartment, very much like the one in the movie. And so I sent it to them and to my surprise, they, they loved it. It needed a big rewrite, which I did. And then they, um, they got it to Alok Mishra and Shane Forster at Malevolent and, they signed on and and that was the start of the of the roller coaster. Wow. And Nicole, how about yourself? What what were you working on before you uh, got involved with this project? Gosh, well, I just grew up acting. My parents put me in community theater when I was little just kind of for fun, me and my twin sister and then I sort of latched onto it, really liked it. And um I went to a theater camp for many summers, Stage Door Manor, which was very fun maybe a little bit nerdy, but I absolutely loved it. Um, and then I ended up going to college and, and majoring in, in acting and, and, uh, communications as well, you know, well-rounded, but I graduated almost three years ago now. So I've been auditioning and working a little bit. I, I did some theater right out of college and then moved to New York and, um, I had signed with my agents pretty soon and then or pretty just like right before David um, and his script came my way. So that was 
very exciting. Nicole, that vision of you and the promo images of the wall scene <laughs> that they're using is is now iconic. It's stunning. Right? It's, it's really cool. When did you guys realize that was the shot that was going to be this film's very unique calling card? Uh, that was actually, you know, we were working. So we premiered at Fantasia Fest last July, and we were basically working on the movie up until about three days before our premiere screening. So there was not time to do a poster or to do any kind to think about marketing at all. And so I think it was literally a few days before our, our deadline to send images to Fantasia that, you know, I just called the producers and I said, OK, everybody, here's a time coded version of the movie. Let's go through it and find images to send them. And that was one that I picked out. Um, I was looking for something from that section of the movie. And, and that shot just seemed like it summed up everything. You know, she goes through, as you know, a lot of expressions on that wall. And that one, to me, really spoke to kind of the the themes of the movie in a way that that some of the other ones didn't. And yeah, that's you know, we sent multiple images to to Fantasia and that was the one they chose. And then that was the one that, you know, everybody kind of agreed like that sort of sums up the movie in a in a great way. Let's get into your horror backgrounds and maybe learn about what makes the both of you tick and the kind of filmmaking and performances that have informed and influenced you. We will start with Nicole. Are you a horror fan? And if so, or if not, what are those impactful horror films and horror movie moments that have stayed with you? Oh, gosh. Well, I have to say I'm a little bit of a scaredy cat. And my mom really loves thrillers and some horror. And so I grew up kind of, you know, seeing bits and pieces and she would try to get me to watch something and then I would um, get too scared. But now that I'm more of an adult, I do enjoy it a lot more. Um, I I grew up watching a lot of like Hitchcock movies, you know, Cujo and and all of that. But uh, I feel like for this role, in terms of what helped, David um, had talked to me about The Handmaid's Tale kind of before we started, and and I had I had seen I think a couple episodes before we started filming, and I just think that Elizabeth Moss was there's a similar kind of, you know, entrapment that takes place in that show, obviously, to a different extreme. But I think that the nuance of her performance was was really striking to me. And, and that definitely resonated with me moving forward as we filmed. I grew up really like just loving every genre and every type of movie. And, and um, you know, I, I grew up sort of in the era of Spielberg but at some point, sort of when I when I got serious about about movies, Kubrick was always my guy. And what I loved about him was that he could take any genre and and put his unique stamp on it. And so obviously The Shining has has been a, a huge influence on me in my life. And then in high school, I got really into into horror movies and kind of into schlocky horror movies. I had a friend Brian Ryder and we, you know, we would just hang out at his house and I'm going to date myself here, but we would watch VHS movies at his house on Friday nights. And, you know, we watched the entire Nightmare on Elm Street series. We watched Jacob's Ladder. We watched, I think we got into Toby Hooper at a certain point. And um, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre has been a big influence on me in a lot of ways. To me, that's probably still the scariest movie I've ever seen because it's just so like wrong, like nothing is all right at the end of that movie. 
so yeah, I have a real a real love of horror, but at the same time, this is the first and and so far the only script I've ever written that could be classified as horror. And even so, you know, I have to say, like, I've been so gratified by how the movie's been embraced by the horror community, which is just the the greatest audience community in in cinema, as far as I'm concerned. Because I, you know, I remember when I wrote it and when we were making it, I was like, I don't know if this is going to be accepted. Like, it's not a traditional horror movie. That there's not a lot of scares in it. You know, it's 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 more of a slow burn, and it's you know just to see the audiences at Fantasia go for it, it just meant so much to me. Um, I love horror, I love thrillers as well, and I love science fiction. That's the the my next project is a science fiction movie. I go I go all over the place. We want to go to great lengths to make sure we don't ruin the fun of the many surprises that this film has to offer. Because we really think it's a journey best taken, even without seeing the trailer, as its secrets are so much fun to uncover on your own. And uh, the three of us, we saw it without even watching the trailer. All we had was that one image of Nicole against that wall and that was enough to sell it. And then the mystery You're reveals like, itself. Exactly. <laughs> and it's, 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 it's so intense and so fun. So keeping that in mind, tell us about exactly like the moment you came up with the script. It came together as a lot of my scripts do. It, it came together when sort of two, I two half ideas I'd been kicking around collided. Um, and one of them was just this idea, um, it, it was just the feeling of living in that apartment complex. The, the, the complex in the movie actually resembles the one I lived in when I first moved to LA kind of shockingly much. Um, and you know, I arrived here, I didn't know anybody. It was my first time living on my own and I just felt swallowed up by the city. I felt anonymous and lost and alienated. And then I was living in this very kind of outwardly cheery, apartment complex with palm trees and and a pool and friendly neighbors waving on the breezeway. And there was something that was like, just really scary about that. (laughs) Um, You know, you didn't, all these people waving and you're waving back at them. You don't know anything about them. You realize that these are the people who are going to be the first line. If anything goes wrong, if there's some emergency or disaster, like these are the people you'll have to turn to. And there was something scary about that. And you know, I found myself when I first moved in there really just kind of like there were a lot of weird creaks in the apartment and I could hear people walking overhead. Um, and so it was that kind of that feeling that, you you know, you feel in the in the first in the first part of the movie, especially that was kind of the beginning of the idea. I connected that up with this more traditional horror idea. And that was the that was the beginning of the script. And it was pretty quick to write the first draft after that. Nicole, your character has to endure some conflicting and quite contrasting experiences from the happy neighborly experiences to the darker, sinister experiences in in this movie. How did you prepare yourself for this role? I was cast just before we started filming. (laughs) Um, So it was a pretty quick turnaround. But David was super helpful. We had two, I think, almost whole days of kind of talking through the script and working through um, the various things that Sarah that Sarah goes through. And and I have to say, I mean, David was incredibly helpful with that because, you know, I can take it to where I think she is. But in terms of shaping that and, and kind of providing um, a different color or a different light, uh, David was so, so helpful. But 
you know, there are some, some pretty dark moments and that was definitely challenging. And we were on a tight schedule, you know, so everything kind of has to be, I, I don't know. It was interesting, but the, the set was, everybody was so helpful and so supportive. So it was, it was kind of easier for me to get into those, into those spaces relatively quickly, which was helpful for me. And I think helpful for the team. <laughs> <laughs> totally necessary. Yeah. We had time for about two takes. with most of our show. Wow. Oh my God. Gosh. Yeah. Which gives you some, some perspective on how good Nicole is. Um, Cause yeah, we, we did not have much rehearsal. We brought her in very late and then, you know, she had to just get there for these intense scenes. We did not have time to, you know, to spend a lot of takes getting there and she just did it. She really made it look very easy. And I know it's not. Nicole, have you ever taken your performance levels to this sort of space before? And were you surprised about your ability to not only translate it so well, but to to cope with taking yourself there and letting yourself back down to normal after it was done? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely difficult, right? You hear about method actors who who go to the extreme and it works really well for for many and, and not so well for others. And I certainly don't fall into that category. But I mean, it's definitely difficult to get into that headspace and then to come back out of it maybe not as hard going in but to come back out of it especially you know I was living on my own while we were filming in a new city um I was from New York and and flew to LA so it was kind of funny to have a few of these parallels but yeah you know it, it it's challenging I think I think I on stage had gone um to a few similar places but in terms of what David wrote and a few of their more difficult scenes. No, I hadn't, I hadn't had a chance to perform anything like that before. So I guess I was surprised myself a little bit. Yeah. I wasn't quite sure where we were going to end up. And then I was like, okay, I think that's good. But David did have to, you know, like on camera things read differently. So it was, it was a learning process for me as well, but it was fun. Weirdly. You know, it's kind of fun to explore those different avenues and you can do things that you didn't realize you could. And, you know, seeing it all come together on screen was was very special for for me. And then, David, on your end, talk about finding Nicole as your Sarah. Yeah. So our casting process was very difficult on this. Um, We had done a call, you know, we'd gone out to the agencies and sort of gotten a bunch of people on tape. And Nicole went right to the top of everyone's list. You know, you could just see it in in the audition. Like w- what I responded to was was a the sort of the the purity of of what she was doing. That she was, you know, you could tell she was like purely in in the moment and in the character. But also, Nicole was was maybe the only actor that I felt like actually had fully understood the script, fully understood the character and was making choices that were really smart and surprised me in some ways. So that sort of put her on the top of the list. Now, we didn't end up casting her initially because we ended up having an opportunity to cast somebody with a a pretty big profile, like a, a relatively famous actress who was interested in the project. And, you know, the producers got together and, and, you know, decided like we can't not do this you know it it would have just bumped the movie into a higher profile immediately and I couldn't argue with that I you know I I I had to agree with them 
And so we went forward with another actress only to have her drop out about four days before we were supposed to start shooting, which is, you know, one of the dangers of casting somebody who's several notches above your budget level. (laughs) Um, and so then we were really in a spot and we, we then immediately went out to Nicole who was extremely generous to, to say yes on, you know, I think, I don't know. I think they cast you on Thursday and you flew out Friday or something like that. It was, yes. <laughs> it was insanely fast. And then we yes. had Saturday afternoon to rehearse and then I think Sunday off. And then we started on Monday. That's insane. <laughs> wow. yeah. yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> the Boo Crew will be right back. Tonight, meet the twisted genius of Edgar Allan Poe. Experience a terrifying tale of druid witchcraft and the scream that kills. Cry of the Banshee. American International presents new heights in horror never before filmed. Vincent Price stars of this new adventure in Terror and Torture. Don't miss Cry of the Banshee. You'll learn to fear it. Rated GP. Another thing that helps in creating this larger-than-life attribute on this film is the focus on world-building through sound, whether it's the pipes, the moment when Sarah's wearing her earplugs and we hear her head voice as she's yelling to her cat and the amazing score. How important was it to augment this world through sound for you? Oh, that was extremely important, and was it was built into the script. All, all, all of that stuff is, is, is in there from the script stage. You know, it was something we spent a lot of time on was building the sonic world. Um, you know, we, we went through so many iterations of the pipes. I can't even tell you. I never want to hear another pipe sound again. But uh, we had a really wonderful uh, sound designer named Jason George, who is, you know, he's another one of these people who just we didn't deserve to, to have. Um, he works at Sony uh, on the blacklist. And but he's a friend of one of our producers and did us a massive favor. So we were, you know, we were editing on a mix stage at Sony, which if if you know anything about sound, like those are like $5,000 a day to rent, you know, so like that would have killed our budget, but we just had free access to it, um, which was incredible. And he really did an amazing job just like pulling together this, this otherworldly kind of feeling. And then the other really key element of that was yet another person we, we really, you know, we, we were really punching above our weight. I feel like with some of the people we got was our composer Ronan Landa who's just an incredible composer. He wrote the music for The Pact, the Nicholas McCarthy movie, which is an incredible score. And he does also amazing orchestral music. That was actually what I first really responded to. And he's just very experimental. And he was totally game to kind of, you know, I had this idea that the score and the sound design were going to, especially in that middle part of the movie, were really going to blend together and have to play off each other so that at some point you weren't sure where one ended and the other began. Because we're really so much... You know, the, the one sort of mandate with the sound design and with Ronan was this movie is, is entirely subjective. This movie is entirely from Sarah's point of view. And the, the music and the sound are, the, are the, the sounds that she's hearing or that she's feeling in her head. And so we spent a lot of time, you know, dialing in just like where the score comes in and where it goes out and how it meshes with the, uh, with the, the sound design. 
And the, the other really important part of that was that I wanted to very strongly differentiate that middle section, you know, with the wall sonically from the rest of the movie. And that meant making that space as dead as possible. When you get into that section, all the outside world goes away. There's nothing there. There's no echoes. There's no, you know, footsteps are very dead. And I wanted this pure feeling of isolation there, which came across great, but drove Jason, our sound designer, batty because we had this amazing set that all the apartments were were done on. The one flaw with the set was that the floor was the creakiest thing you have ever heard. Like every footstep anybody took, you would hear this like, creak, creak, creak. And I was just, you know, like I would hear every little one and I would, I would say, Jason, we got to get rid of that. And he's like, nobody else is going to notice it. I'd say, I notice it. We got to get rid of it. And I made him edit out every creak out of that section wow. of the movie. And he probably hates me to this day, but I, I, I still feel like it was worth it. Like that section of the movie, I just, I love the way it sounds. How did you discover that song? You know, the one I'm talking about, that one song. So that, that's an interesting thing too. So, you know, again, like we, we were basically, this movie was really made on a shoestring and in the, um, the temp, so that the idea of having a song in there actually was something I was kind of resistant to, but our editor, Rich Fox, just put it in at some point. The song he put in was Begun, which was so perfect for that whole experience that like, we all kind of fell in love with it. And we were like, we have to just get, we've only just begun. And so we tried and, you know, the Karen Carpenter's father, I guess, who still runs the, the, the estate just doesn't want to license the music, um, especially to horror movies. So it was just a, it was just a hard no. It wasn't even like a money thing. Um, So then we had to go and try to find, something. And we went through, I don't know how many songs we went through, just trying to find one that would work. And then our producer, Alok, was the one who actually suggested Happy Heart. And I was really, it was another one I was really skeptical of. Partly I was skeptical of it because um, that movie's used really prominently in Shallow Grave, which is, you know, it's, it's a great movie. And I was like, I don't want to be r- ripping off this other movie. But I sort of said, okay, I'll try it. And, and, you know, among all the, all the other ones we tried, it was the only one that really worked and it felt different enough. The way it's used in our movie is very different from the way it's used in Shallow Grave. And so, you know, we felt, okay, let's, let's go for this. And then, uh, one last note on that was that we could not afford the, the rights to the actual recording. (laughs) So that's a, that's a cover. That's not Andy Williams. Um, that's my friend, Matt, who did all the, all the other music, all the other songs in the movie were all him he got a band together and recorded an amazing version of that song. So to react to all that, uh, all that sound design and have that be such a strong character in the film, Nicole, were you reacting or aware or in the direction were you being informed of what was happening sonically in your scenes to be able to put yourself in that world? Um, Yes. I mean, in terms of like we would do takes and, David would, you know, loud music here. <laughs> and I, was like, I would okay. yell, pipes, pipes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we would kind of do that like once or twice kind of so that I had the arc. And then I think a couple of times it was helpful to, to kind of just once I knew the rhythm, it was almost like a dance, you know, it's like, now, you know, the, the arc of it. 
Yeah, I think the takes we ended up using were mostly the ones you asked for this. You said, can I do a take where you don't say anything? Like, I know when they Mm -hmm. come now, let me just do it in my head. And those tended to be the best, the best takes. One startling revelation we made while watching is that the first time we hear the song, the time code in the security camera on that scene is today's date, 416. Oh, no way. Yeah. It, oh. fr- it freaked us the fuck out because we watched it last <laughs> night at like 1 a.m. And the security camera said, today's date. <laughs> that was entirely on purpose. That was just for you guys. <laughs> yeah, we were just waiting for it's this. part of the immersive yeah. experience. That's right. <laughs> the subtle yet alarming ending reveals a bigger story, perhaps. Are there any plans for a sequel? Not immediately. You know, we, we definitely would be open to it. I have ideas for, you know, the larger world of this, of the story and where it might go and where it might have come from as well. I think there's still a lot of story to be told in that world and a lot more of Sarah's story that would be interesting to tell. We got to wait and see if the world is clamoring for it. I'm certainly open to it. I would love to, to go back into this world, but you know, we're a, we're a tiny movie. There's a lot of options out there for people to look at. So it really depends, you know, how it how it does. I want to talk about the apartment building. Was it a set? Was it an actual building? How did that all work? So there were two components. One is the is all the exteriors. So the courtyard, the breezeways, um, the front of the building, etc. The lobby as well. That was all a real apartment complex in Chatsworth. And it was a real, it was an actual, you know, working apartment. So we, we were working around residents, a few of whom were interested in enough in the movie that they became extras, but they were, they were actually really warm. They, we got a really warm welcome there. We didn't, I, I was really worried about it because I thought, you know, we're just going to be disturbing these people. And the biggest problem we had was that there were a lot of dogs in the complex. So oh my gosh, we would have to dogs. pause for, pause for barking, barking. dogs a lot. <laughs> And then the interiors, all the interiors were one set. We built a set, a one bedroom apartment set, living room, kitchen, bedroom, bathroom. And then, you know, we spent most of the time shooting Sarah's apartment there. And then in the last few days of production, our production design team, who were really incredible, they built that whole thing. But then they also had to do overnight shifts to turn it over into Miss Stanhope's apartment into the classroom into um, Lester's apartment. And so that's all, it's all the same, the same set for those, all those four locations. Yeah, they, they were, they were amazing. Like I still, I watch the movie now and I sometimes forget that that's all the same space. Now walking away from this experience, is there maybe you could each say one thing that you took with you that enriched your process moving forward from this experience? How many more hours do we have? Uh, <laughs> this was this was a, a real, you know, trial by fire for me. Like I had never done anything of the scale of this before. Um, and I, I learned so many lessons, um, many of them very painful lessons. But I would say sort of the 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 biggest overarching lesson I took away was you know, we, we were a snake bit production from the beginning, from the casting issues I told you about to the fact that there were wildfires in LA just days before we started shooting. And we almost got canceled because of that. And then a production truck got stolen in the middle of it. You know, we had 15 days to shoot and we didn't have time for that kind of thing. So it was an incredibly stressful production. And I think the biggest lesson I learned was that my job, maybe my main job as director was to 
trust the producers that they were going to handle everything and keep it afloat and do everything I could to create a calm, creative space for the cast and, and the crew. You know, I, I think I wasn't always perfect at that. <laughs> that was the, the biggest takeaway for me. I mean, I definitely learned a lot. That's a difficult question because it's it was, I think, the second feature that I had worked on and certainly the biggest role I had had in a feature. I like to prepare a lot in advance, right? So, you know, come to set, all lines are memorized, everything's been worked through. And like we said, this was a completely different experience for me. So I feel like I learned to take things like one day at a time or one scene at a time. There are moments where I was in the makeup chair, like quickly learning lines and would our my co-star Giles would help me run them, you know? So it's like using every minute when you're not on screen to to look to the next thing or work through a certain moment or ask David a question. I think that was, as a, as a young actor, you know, kind of just entering this business, that was a really good learning experience for me. And then what's next for the both of you? Well, auditions are a little bit halted right now, but I have been reading a couple scripts, so we'll see when um, when things get moving again, hopefully when our world comes back together and, and can be safe and healthy again some things will get moving. Very fun. And David, you mentioned a science fiction film that you're working on? Yeah. So I have a script um, for this uh, science fiction movie that I wrote actually quite a ways after One Bedroom. And, but it was always too big for me to direct. And so I was just sort of out there for, for other directors. And then One Bedroom has done well enough that, um, and we all had a good enough experience, the producers and I, that they said, look, we think we can get the budget for that. So they're doing that and I'm rewriting the script, which is, you know, this is, seems to be kind of the perfect moment for that. I got very lucky with the timing of this plague. And, uh, so yeah, I'm just working on the script and, you know, hoping that there are still movies in six months. (laughs) Oh, there sure will be. Well, guys, thank you so much. It is such a joy to, uh, experience this film. I encourage everyone to go yes. out and, and see it. It comes out on VOD April 24th. It's called One Bedroom or One BR, however you want to say it. Nicole and David, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. This was great. Just cutting in with a spoiler alert. This is one more question we asked about the plot line directly that gives a bit of a surprise away. If you've not seen One BR, feel free to end the show right here, and we will see you again for the next one. You've been warned. <laughs> yeah, David, are any of the experiences Nicole's character Sarah faces in the movie based on any real life experiences or stories from organizations or cults? Well, yeah. So there are things, there's a lot of stuff, especially in the, in the early part of the movie that, that are based on my own personal experiences and obviously taken to an extreme. But uh, I did have uh, a cat I was not supposed to have in that apartment, <laughs> which, you know, I think contributed to my sense of paranoia about the whole experience. So that definitely informed that, that whole plot line. And then as you get further into the movie, Yeah. So I did a lot of research. I think, you know, part of actually where the whole idea of the movie came from was that at the time I was living in this apartment, I got really interested in utopian organizations and the sort of history of cults in LA. It's a real breeding ground. Like you you think of famous cults and a lot of them started in LA from, you know, the Manson family on. And so, you know, I, I did do a lot of research on that 
you know, some of it just for my own curiosity before I even wrote the script. And then as I was getting into it, I, I started sort of reading up on, on these groups more um, diligently. And I would say that the, the, the closest analog, sort of the, the group that the movie is most closely based on is um, an organization called Synanon that was started in the late 50s in L.A. as a drug rehab. And that was the thing that I found really interesting about a lot of these groups is that they, they began with very pure motives. They began really genuinely wanting to help people. And then somehow over the, the course of their life, it got perverted. Um, and that's very much what I intended with, with the movie. But Synanon began as this drug rehab. It was at a time that there was not such a thing that, you know, drug addiction was not thought of as an illness in the way it is now. It was really stigmatized. And this was one of the only places people could get help. So it really was a very good thing initially. But then at some point, the leader of it decided that people who were addicted to drugs would never truly be free of their addiction. And the only way to stay drug free was for them to come live at the organization. And that, I think, is when it started to transition from something very positive into something darker. And yeah, it's worth reading up on Synanon because it it got a little bit bonkers by the end. And, you know, there were there was uh, at least attempted murders. There was possibly murders. There were snakes being left in mailboxes. And by then they had moved from L.A. up to Northern California, I think, to get away from legal problems. And they were living on a big ranch in Northern California in the 70s. And then George Lucas was making THX 1138 and he needed a whole bunch of bald extras, male and female. And all the extras you see in THX 1138 are members of Synanon. That's wild. Crazy. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? <laughs> That's crazy, man. That was the Boo Crew Podcast episode 122. Special thanks to our guests, David Marmer and Nicole Bryden Bloom. Follow n.brydenbloom on Instagram and Nicole underscore B underscore Bloom on Twitter. And we couldn't seem to find David Marmer's socials. But he's worth looking up, so track him down. At time of release, see 1BR on VOD and digital Friday, April 24th. Production tracks provided by Powerman 5000. Till next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and sweet screams. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at TalesFromTheBoo. The Boo Crew is... Is Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Bye. A bloody disgusting podcast network, home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews, SCP archives, weekly full-cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and creepy or disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.